just words. Finding the line between free speech and protecting the vulnerable. You can't say or do anything anymore, otherwise you'll be dragged off to the law courts. Why is this the pressing issue of our time? Hello, I'm Nick Healy. Welcome to Just Words, a new original 2SER series that goes beyond the hype and headlines of our race laws and gets the true stories from those that have used Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act and those that have had it used against them. Our story this week starts during World War II. It's a very similar story to Anne Frank, which a lot of people know. But Anne Frank was hidden with her family. This is Francine Lazarus. She was a Jewish child in Belgium during World War II. I was hidden by myself. I was four years old, 1942. And my father managed to get me on a farm in a place called Sainte, which is not far from Brussels. She was hidden with a couple, Catherine and Auguste, who were part of the Belgian resistance. The farm had two couples, a mother and father, and their daughter and her husband. One day, she was helping Katrine with some chores at the back of the farmhouse. I think we were doing some washing, which I loved doing. I loved milking the cow. I was taught how to do that by August. When they heard something in the distance. And um, truck came down the road and stopped in front of a farm. And soldiers jumped out. There were some people in uniform, some people not uniform. At the back of the farmhouse, there were these haystacks. I played around them and never, you know, queried they were there. And when Katrin saw what was going on, she grabbed Francine and rushed towards them. She pulled me and put me in with her into one which was hollow. She more or less sat on the ground, put me between her legs and held me extremely tight and put her hand on my mouth. Francine sat there for what felt like eternity. We had at the back of the farmhouse, we had a peach tree growing in on espalier. It was growing like ivy against a wall, spread out to reach the maximum amount of sun so the peaches could grow sweet and juicy in a cool European climate. It would have been summer because the peaches were on the tree and they were big. Francine couldn't see much past the hay and the peach tree, but she could hear and someone was getting closer to the hiding place. They were looking. They were definitely looking. Francine doesn't think they were searching for her, a little Jewish girl hiding in the haystack. She thinks maybe they were after ammunition or something else to do with Catherine and Auguste's role in the resistance. But whatever they were after, they were determined to find it. Catherine had her hand so tight on my mouth, I don't know how I managed to breathe. They were getting closer and closer until... Somebody had a bright idea to pick up a pitchfork and start digging into the haystacks. And one hit me in the neck. I've got a lovely souvenir there. I have a big mark on my neck on my right-hand side and um, one on the leg. I don't remember seeing the men on the floor, whether they were dead, I don't know. Whether they'd been taken away for further torture, I don't know. 
I don't know what happened. All I can remember was there was blood, blood on the peaches, blood on the floor, blood. I, I was frozen. Today we're looking at how the specific wording of Section 18C, and that's a bit of our Racial Discrimination Act that bans offending, insulting, intimidating and humiliating people because of their race, and how this law has been used to combat Holocaust denial. I'm joined by producer Nina Kopel. Today we're bringing you a story about how the Jewish community have used 18C to protect their history. Nina, can we go back to Francine's story, please? I mean, we're in the middle of it. I need to hear the ending. It's a long story, and Francine goes through a lot, including her dad going to Auschwitz. I'm going to tell you the story, I promise. But before I do, I need to tell you another story about a battle in court, the case of Jones and Tobin. It starts with a guy called Jeremy Jones. I'm Jeremy Jones. Jeremy's always been kind of different. There was a teacher in my high school who made an anti-Jewish comment attacking a pupil who was not Jewish. Jeremy's Jewish, but the student Jeremy's talking about wasn't. He would have been 13, did not know what to do. So 15-year-old Jeremy hears about it. He wasn't even there. He wasn't in the same class. One of his friends just mentioned it to someone who mentioned it to me. And he thought, this isn't okay. And I went and complained to the school principal about the teacher bullying the pupil on racist grounds. And we had a very respectful conversation. The teacher was disciplined. Uh, The teacher hated me, but lots of teachers hated me because I used to do stuff like that. So Jeremy grows up. He goes to university. He gets a job. But his distinct sense of right and wrong never falters. He ends up working at the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, which is an elected body that represents Jewish people in Australia. And he becomes the Jewish community's go-to guy for anti-Semitic activity. People would call him and complain about their day-to-day experiences of racism in Australia. One of the frequent complaints was about this guy called Frederick Tobin and his website, the Adelaide Institute. Do you, have you heard of this? I've heard of it, and I'm always amazed by how innocuous it sounds when people just say, Adelaide Institute. Have you seen the website? I've never actually seen the Adelaide Institute website, no. Okay, let me show you. Oh my. Uh, I had something really similar in 1997 on GeoCities. What what were you using it for? What was I using it for? It was a Withnell and I fan page. What else would you be using it for back in 1997? (laughs) I don't even know what that is, but it sounds so geeky. (laughs) It was pretty geeky. What are, you, what are you seeing? What am I showing you right now? I'm seeing some of the oldest school blue hyperlinks I've ever encountered my entire life. I'm seeing a flashing animated GIF of the Adelaide Institute's logo just coming in and out as if it was a, a 24-7 bottle shop trying to encourage <laughs> me to come in. Okay, but have a read of what's up there top and centre. Um, the only sin that's still left is Nazi sin. That's the new religion and Hitler is the devil. The six million... Ah, uh, the Redeemer. The Jewish people are God. Horror, horror, horror. That's the religion of today. Can I blaspheme against the Holocaust? By saying that there were no gas chambers? Nina, what are we reading? Welcome to the world of Holocaust denial. This was from a sermon given by someone called Bishop Williamson, although he's been excommunicated now. And this is what the Adelaide Institute chooses to put on its homepage. Yeah. So people were complaining about this to Jeremy Jones. Yeah, but there wasn't a lot he could do. People are going, looking at the Holocaust and being exposed to this stuff and said, we have to try and do something about it. It cannot possibly be acceptable. My family came to Australia in the 1850s. 
I know there were members of my family, extended family, who did not leave Europe and were murdered during the Shoah. Shoah is the Hebrew word for Holocaust. Directly translated, it means calamity. And while Jeremy didn't have first-hand, lived experience of the Holocaust, some of the people who were calling him did. It was generally elderly people who were generally in tears, that they couldn't do anything, they'd be upset. These people were people like Francine, the little Jewish girl hiding in the hay. They had witnessed Europe's descent into brutality, and now their memories were being used against them. Some of the people I spoke to began by saying, we were born in Europe, we lived through the Nazi Holocaust, or we were very young children, and we came, we came to Australia to get away from this sort of thing. Jeremy would get these calls, but he didn't have the power to change anything. I would often come across a situation where people were doing things which I think most people would find obnoxious, offensive, and the response was, well, if there was something wrong, there would be a law against it. The understanding that if there's not a law against it, it's, it's okay. Most people felt that there was something wrong with Australia if nothing could be done about this behaviour. It was despair. But then something changed. Suddenly, people weren't just calling, saying, I'm upset, I'm frustrated. They were calling, saying, I'm upset, I'm frustrated, let's do something. I'm old enough to have grown up in a world where there wasn't 18C and where there was. 18C gave Jeremy and all those people that were calling them complaining this new power. For the first time, someone could take legal action against someone who had offended them based on race. They said, look, this has been going on for a long time. Now is there something we can do about it? We know there is a law there. So we were acting because of the complaints. We didn't sit there and say, what point are we trying to prove? We were trying to say, there is a a law in place. These people have said that their lives are being impacted negatively. Can we help them by being an organisation or individuals who will devote the time to dealing with these cases? So Jeremy Jones and the Executive Council of Australian Jury sent in their complaint to the Human Rights Commission. Hang on a second. Uh, Are you telling me that until 18C was added to the Racial Discrimination Act in, uh, when was it? 1994. Right. So before 94, there were no laws you could use against Holocaust denial? Nothing specific. Australia isn't like Germany, for example, where Holocaust denial is a crime. So Jeremy Jones started to collect evidence, which initially was pretty easy. It was all right there online. The challenging part was sifting through the mass of content on the Adelaide Institute's website and forming a cohesive argument to present to the Human Rights Commission. In the court, we were required to show which individual words and which individual part and how this added up to being offensive. And sometimes that can be quite difficult, finding individual words or individual paragraphs. It's the whole thing. But the date for the hearing was approaching and the race was on. We spent literally hundreds if not thousands of hours going through material, responding, working at it. Um, I would say I didn't leave the office before 10 or 11 at night for weeks and would take stuff home as well. So normally the Human Rights Commission tries to help conciliate these cases before they go to court, but this one went straight through to a public hearing. The Human Rights Commissioner in charge of this case just couldn't see Jones and Tobin managing to sit down together and work this out. Yeah, well, that kind of makes sense. I mean, how do you strike a balance between Holocaust deniers and someone who's trying to represent Holocaust survivors? Exactly. So they went straight through to a public hearing. 
we had the first hearing, and I just give this background. It's not widely known, but it's happened a long time ago, and I think everybody can cope with what I'm about to say. I had a lawyer and a barrister. When I arrived in the court, the lawyer came downstairs. He said, it's terrible. Frederick Tobin's there. And my family, most of them were murdered during the, the Holocaust. And I can't, he wants to shake my hand. I can't shake his hand. You know, he, he want, I just can't do it. My barrister says, I have to treat this as a normal case. If you put, you know, you, it's just a case. I'm not going to be emotional. So I was in this bit of this dilemma because they, they were both good people, friends. And I didn't want to side with one against the other. So I didn't want to, you know, acknowledge him as a human being or be upset by him. So what did he choose? He ignored Tobin, and Tobin took great offence to that. The Holocaust denier actually took offence at not being graded. Well, that. But also the fact that the commissioner wouldn't let Tobin use the hearing to broadcast his ideas about the Holocaust. Why not? Because it wasn't the commissioner's job to engage with Tobin in historical debate. The commissioner's job was to determine if Tobin had offended, insulted, humiliated or intimidated based on race. When the commissioner told Tobin this, though, he responded... If the truth is no defence, the lie must prevail. Goodbye, gentlemen. Mr Jones and Mr Wertheim, they didn't even say good morning to me. They didn't even shake hands. What rudeness, right? So that wasn't really Tobin, by the way. He still won't talk to me. So we got an actor to do it. Anyway, Tobin turned around, he left the courtroom, and he didn't come back. So Tobin stormed out. He's lost the case. Well, no. The commissioner still looks at the evidence and tries to determine if there's any possibility Tobin acted in good faith. But the language that Jeremy Jones and his lawyers presented to the commissioner, things like... Gassings were not possible. ...meant a good faith defence was out of Tobin's reach. I wanted to talk to Tobin about his ideas, to understand how he justifies them, where they come from. I asked him if we could do an interview, but he declined. Twice. Instead, I took to the internet. The Holocaust is Israel's number one propaganda weapon. Spent hours immersed in these videos of him. Um, I want to know, and therefore, I have to ask questions, difficult questions. Reading these newsletters he produced. Don't blame the Jews. Blame those that bend to their pressure. Claim that I am doing this on the principle of freedom of speech. Until I had to stop. Get away remind myself what this is really about. Okay, I'm heading to the Sydney Jewish Museum to see their education officer. Hello. Hi, it's Nina from 2SER here for Ari Landa. Thank you. Hi. Hi, Ari. Lovely to meet you. Nina, nice to meet you. So, this is a museum set up by survivors and one of their core questions was the idea of remembrance. So the individual stories, this being a place in which their voices were heard and their stories were told, and then set around that the remembrance of their families mm. who were murdered. So this museum's not just a museum, it's also a memorial site. So this is almost a building that represents that grappling of trauma that survivors are dealing with. And one Ari takes me for a walk through the museum, every now and again stopping me to draw my attention to something I hadn't noticed. Well, right next to us there's a calibre of rifle that was used to murder Jewish people. We know this rifle was used making Jewish slave labour from a concentration camp called Mauthausen. We've done ballistics checks on it. It was fired tens of thousands of times, between twenty to 30,000 times. I'm surrounded so, by evidence of the Holocaust. Walls and walls of photos, weapons, maps, uniforms, videos of survivors telling their stories playing on screens around the building. But also, in some cases, 
the testimonies of those who didn't survive. In certain places where Jews are being burnt alive in synagogues and so forth, they scratch their final testimony to the stone walls of those synagogues, or in places like Auschwitz, those who are working in the gas chambers of crematoria, they write their final testimonies and they bury them in metal canisters around the gas chambers of crematoria, believing no Jews will survive. Francine is one of 27,000 Holocaust survivors who immigrated to Australia after the war. She talks here at the museum from time to time, sharing her story of survival, but also the story of her father, who was sent away on the last train to Auschwitz. In the face of this evidence, this type of documentation, disputing the Holocaust is more than just revisionism. What the Adelaide Institute is alleging, what Tobin is alleging, is that every academic, historian, university that had done work on the Holocaust... They're all liars. They're somehow being conned by Jewish people. That every single survivor's a liar. We have the testimony of thousands of perpetrators. The war crimes trials, they were all... Doctored and created. That those with personal stories... Every single survivor's a liar. All those documents by Germans coming into areas and saying, we murdered 5,000 Jews today. They're fabricated. And once you say that and realise that all this evidence is somehow concocted... Then what you're talking about, what Tobin was talking about, is... Some international Jewish conspiracy. And that is anti-Semitic. So Holocaust deniers are saying Jewish people are like the puppet masters of the whole world. Yeah. People like Tobin say that the Jews benefited from the Holocaust. In some places they got reparations. And the state of Israel. Exactly. So is this what the public hearing found as well? That Tobin's views amounted to a conspiracy by Jewish people? Yes, but that wasn't the end of it. The hearing was held back when the Human Rights Commission ran the 18C cases themselves. But then the High Court decided that they couldn't do this. They didn't have the judicial power. So the case had to be heard before a judge. So they tried the case all over again in the federal court. Yeah, and Jeremy Jones won again. Okay, if Tobin lost, why is his website still there? You made me read it. Because Tobin wasn't ordered to remove the entire website, only the things that were particularly offensive. But even then, he didn't exactly rush to take down those parts either. Can can you do that? Can you just ignore what a judge says you have to do? Well, no, you can't. Two years go by and Tobin hasn't taken anything down. So Jeremy takes Tobin back to court. The judge gives Tobin seven days to take down any material that relates to Holocaust denial or suggests that gas chambers didn't exist. Basically, anything that supports that idea of the Jewish conspiracy. And then Jeremy Jones finally got what he was after. No. Seriously? Another six years go by, oh, for- and Jeremy sues Tobin for contempt of court for not following the judge's orders. Adelaide's notorious Holocaust denier Frederick Tobin's been given three months jail for refusing to remove offensive material from his website, but he'll remain... So does 18C even work? I mean, if you have to go this far and eventually use, of all things, contempt of court charges to see results, is the legislation working? Well, Jeremy says the 18C case completely discredited Tobin. But what I wanted to know is if, on some level, going to prison is exactly what he wanted. Frederick Tobin went into court this morning prepared to go to jail. I see it as going to college. I'll, I'll learn a few things in there. And he's speaking from experience. Remember how I told you there's a law that makes Holocaust denial illegal in Germany? Yeah. Well, in 99, he was imprisoned for nine months in Mannheim prison. He seemed pretty keen to go back to prison. I mean, was the case just turning him into a martyr for the cause? Well, I wanted to know the same thing, so I asked Jeremy Jones this. Well, you asked, was he a martyr? You had David Irving. Probably the most infamous Holocaust denier in the world. David Irving even said Frederick Tobin brought Holocaust deniers into disrepute. Uh, He was, no, he lost any credibility he would have had beyond a tiny fringe of losers. You you think about it, 
you have to be pretty crazy to want to go to jail. So Tobin goes to prison. I mean, that's got to be the end of Tobin and Jones. Well, the case itself came to an end, but Jeremy Jones went on to bring other 18C cases to the commission, and it took its toll on him. Look, the cases aren't pleasant because, first of all, you don't want them to exist in the first place. I mean, who wants to be talking about this sort of stuff? But Jeremy took on these issues regardless, using 18C in about six different cases, and almost all of them he either won in court or successfully conciliated. But Jeremy also had an impact on the law itself. How so? Jeremy was involved in the case where a judge decided Holocaust denial could be a form of anti-Semitism, and that anti-Semitism is a form of racism. But here's the thing. One of the bills currently before Parliament proposes to change the wording of 18C by removing the words offend and insult. Do you think if the law does change, they'd still be able to use 18C against Holocaust deniers? It's hard to tell at this point without knowing exactly what the new law would be. But one of the things we know for sure is that if anything changes at all, years of precedent will be undone. Okay, so just to be clear, this wouldn't impact the Tobin case or any other cases where 18C has already been used successfully. No, they would all stand. It just means that there would be uncertainty for the future. Whatever new law is formed, there would have to be a test case to see if Holocaust denial still falls under it. And if it doesn't? Then the Jewish community in Australia would lose their most powerful tool in their fight against anti-Semitism. What would happen if we got rid of 18C? The level of interpersonal, intergroup, Insult would rise dramatically. You think it would? Oh, yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about that. This is Andrew Yakovich. He's a researcher in race relations and sociology. And the battle, particularly the battle by, um, I guess you'd call them organised racist groups that seek to demean, intimidate, harass and insult people because they want to hurt people. I mean, a lot of what what happens as racism isn't because people want to hurt people and they just don't realise the hurt that they're causing. But people who want to hurt people and organise that because they get their rocks off, really. I mean, they're basically sadists, right? You know, they, you know, they, they do it because they like doing nasty things. Um, they would be liberated. Liberated. When I think of liberation, I think of Rosa Parks. I think of Charles Perkins and the Freedom Rides. What would it mean if Frederick Tobin was liberated? If Tobin's views were given as much weight as Francine's past? What would the consequences be? I want to ask Tobin this, but he's turned me down. So I try one last time and call the Adelaide Institute. It isn't Tobin. It's a guy called Peter Hartung. He says he's the current director of the Adelaide Institute. He told me Tobin was too involved in court cases to talk freely. So I asked him about 18C, and this was the analogy he used. If you take a different example of, say, does God exist? Anyone can go around and question, does God exist? But that's why, that's no why religion... No, is, is that offensive to the Christian people? But that's I why religion that doesn't come under 18C, exists. because we should be able to discuss religions. I should be able to say, um, you know, I as a... So at this point in this interview, I'm just thinking, I almost told this guy I'm Jewish. Should I tell this guy I'm Jewish? I decided it was probably better to keep my mouth shut. I, as a person of this particular religious faith, welcome your questions because I welcome dialogue and I welcome your interest in my lifestyle. But when you start questioning a person's race or their inherent being or the way that they're genetically made up, that's when it becomes damaging because that's what fuels genocide. Uh, well, we don't we don't question that. We're questioning the well. The court found you. The court found you did. 
story. The court found you did. The court wasn't saying that you were right or wrong about what you were publishing on the website. The court said that you were racially offensive in what you published on the website. Yeah, if, so the, just say, for example, that we are correct, then it's racially offensive to state the truth. I don't think you are correct. For most of the interview, we talked about the gassings. Peter told me they couldn't have happened at the rate historians and the media say they did. He called me ignorant for believing them and the Holocaust dogma. But I don't think this is a question of who to believe, because the evidence has won out and witnesses have spoken. To deny the Holocaust happened denies the lived experience of millions of people, people like Francine. When we left Francine's story, she had just been hit with a pitchfork, and there was blood. Blood on the peaches, blood on the floor. So they found her. No, they hit her, but she didn't make a sound. I, I was frozen, and Catherine had her hand so tight on my mouth, I don't know how I managed to breathe. They didn't find her that day, but it was too risky to stay on the farm. Catherine took her back to Brussels, and for the rest of the war, she would move from place to place. There was this organisation in Belgium that helped the kids to hide. They had this whole network operating where they would move them from place to place, but it wasn't pleasant. They were in constant fear of discovery and resources were limited. Washing the kids' clothes was hard because hanging them to dry outside was like a giant billboard saying, Jewish children here. But at least Francine was back in Brussels, where she was closer to her father. She even got to see him from time to time. My father used to bring me every two weeks a little loaf of bread, a tiny little loaf of bread. But towards the end of the war, he stopped bringing Francine gifts. He stopped turning up at all. Francine has this photo of her and her dad. She's tiny with a bow in her hair, walking next to this tall man, her tiny hand engulfed in his. But he doesn't quite fit into the frame. And his life has been cut off just like the photo. So he is cut in half, and, and that's how his life was cut. He was on the last convoy that went to Auschwitz before the end of the war. He was taken in July 1944. The Allies liberated Belgium two months later. He went to his death in a most atrocious way. And I've read a lot of descriptions of what happened there and I get really very upset because I can always imagine myself where I can't breathe, where I'm trying to crawl and climb. It's a horrible death. The gas chambers. The Nazi Holocaust, not only was it seen by millions and millions of people, not only were there people who died and there were perpetrators and historians, there's so much more evidence that there was a Holocaust than there was a Frederick Tobin. By his own qualifications, he doesn't exist. There's not enough evidence to show Frederick Tobin exists. Next time on Just Words, we take a look at the history of the Racial Discrimination Act consider if 18C puts too great a restriction on free speech. We also unpack one of the most high-profile 18C cases out there, where conservative columnist Andrew Bolt accused nine fair-skinned Aboriginals of using their race for political and career clout. 
But before we do that, a parliamentary inquiry has been touring the country investigating the use of 18C. The report is due out on Tuesday the 28th of February and we'll have a special expert panel respond to the findings. Will we see a change in the laws and does 18C really stifle free speech? I'm your host, Nick Healy. Just Words was created by Anthony Dockrell. This episode produced by Nina Copel. Our executive producer is Emma Lancaster. Miles Martignoni is our supervising producer, and he also did the sound design. Original theme music composed by Joe Koning. Research and assistance by Miles Herbert, Joe Koning, Taylor Fuller, and Shane Anderson. Marketing and communication support by Andy Huang. Special thanks to our podcast doctors, Lawrence Bull and Tim Roxborough. This podcast was made by 2SER Radio 107.3. Oversight for this series by 2SER station manager, Melanie Withnell. If you like what you heard and want 2SER to continue making original podcasts, donate today or become a 2SER supporter. Just head to 2SER.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It'll help other people find just words. Just words.